0: Dr. Amalia Ghanies-Malka, welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. South Africa has many young achievers that are truly reaching for the stars. We revisit the stories of three young ladies who featured on Womanity in 2017. Dr. Unkumisa Gelata, Africa's youngest neurosurgeon, Dr. Adriana Murray, a Mars astronaut candidate, and Miss Demi Lee Nell Peters, former Miss SA and now Miss Universe, who have all dreamed big and manifested those dreams into reality. First up is Dr. Unkumisa Gelata, who at the age of 29 became Africa's youngest neurosurgeon. She tells us about her journey to and in neurosurgery. Can you share with our listeners what made you decide to become a neurosurgeon?
1: Okay, the decision to become a neurosurgeon was I think twofold, you know. Um, As a young person, you sort of uh, look at a lot of things and um, the decision to eventually pick one usually it's influenced by a lot of things. So I'd say what stands out for me in terms of picking neurosciences as a whole was a particular grade 11 teacher that we had. His name is Mr. Notia. You know, the love he had for teaching the subject, it was just, it was, it was amazing. So the introduction he gave us to the central nervous system as a whole and you know, the functioning or the electrochemistry or the electro um, circuitry of the, of the nervous system itself It was one of those things where I thought, this is new, this is interesting, this is very fascinating, you know. So um, from then on, I decided, okay, I like neurosciences, but at that point, of course, I wasn't sure what in neurosciences I'd like to do. So then I decided I'll go into medical school, there's still a bit of neurology there or, you know, um, neuro-related issues that one can deal with and um, I particularly remember I think third year or fourth year when we then started going to to the hospital now to you know to get a little bit of so experience. So this is the
0: practical training, the practical as, training as part training. of your yes, yes. studies.
1: You going to ho- this hospital you're introduced to to patient care you know you're introduced to how to talk to patients so I realized there was a shortage of neurosurgeons because particularly in Walter Susulu um, University where I studied which is attached to the Nelson Mandela Hospital. I realized there were actually no neurosurgeons. Despite the pathologists being there you know because the huge area that um, the hospital is servicing so you'd find when you get uh, say in neurosurgical emergencies there was a general surgeon who would sort of do the emergency operation but then everything else you know the more complicated the tumors the interesting actually fascinating part of neurosurgery you would just see the patient the imaging would be done and the patient then has to be sent to Durban or to Cape Town. So it was always sort of this more like a mystery to me like what happens to these patients when they then get to Durban in Cape Town and that's when I decided you know what that's what I'm going to do first and foremost it is fascinating number two there is a genuine need for 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 neurosurgeons so that's pretty much what influenced my my decision making
0: so looking at demand and supply trying to fill that gap yes (laughs) on that note how would you say being a neurosurgeon has changed your perspective of life the way you view the world now
1: i must say it has changed it firstly you know when you're young and you're growing up and you think to yourself there's so much the world has to offer and you have to be perfect things are black and white there are no gray zones you either want to be you know a pilot and you must be that or you want to be a presenter you must be that and you must be this perfect pretty woman who gets married and you do this and the things the one one thing Neuro has taught me is that firstly life is precious it is short and it is not guaranteed I may be now on my way home from here get into a car accident and that's the end of it you know so trying to live one's life um, to please people usually is only to the detriment of one's own peace inside so the perspective that I've got now on life is you know what I'm happy to be alive today firstly things can go wrong they can go very right as well (laughs) so really don't sweat the small stuff you know, in in, in, in simple terms, deals with the small stuff.
0: And as we are a gender-based show, mm-hmm. I also heard from one of your previous interviews that you'd said that you've had to work hard to prove yourself in a male-dominated that field of true. medicine. Mm-hmm. And specifically, which I find mind-blowing, that it was common to be second-guessed as a woman, but one's work ethic will always speak volumes. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, you'd hoped to become as a worthy standard for young girls to give them the courage to break through those barriers of patriarchy in medical science. Can you elaborate on this issue of bias towards women Mm -hmm. and also what your suggestions would be to other women when facing similar circumstances? Yeah, It's a very important um, point
1: you're you're, you're raising. And um, you find part of the problem is not actually even within the organization itself but you find the society at large you know when you get to a hospital I'm going to start from the patient's perspective you get to a hospital you are there with your dad he just fell today and the casualty officer has told you no there's a small bleed you know um, or big enough to warrant surgery and we're going to wait for the neurosurgeon to come and they're currently still in theater So it is not uncommon to get there, start explaining the situation to the patient, and having introduced yourself as Dr. Chilata, and um, this is what we're going to do, this is the cut we're going to make, and this is the reason your dad has got this, etc, etc, etc. Then the next question comes, firstly you're young, and now you're a woman. Then the next question is, actually when we came, we were told that the doctor is in theatre, do you know when he's going to be out? And you think to yourself, but like, when I came here, I introduced myself as Dr. Chigata. I work in neurosurgery. And um, so I am actually the doctor taking care of you. Okay. So then, so how many of these operations have you done? It's not an unfair question. But of course, being a young woman, you tend to find that you get it a whole lot more than perhaps your, your male counterpart, you know. So, but with uh, growth and maturity, and uh, of course, having spent the time that I've spent in Euro, you know, you you get to get a bit of um, resilience to that and um, train yourself that you have to sound confident at any given point in time. So that even if somebody is going to be second guessing you, they are second guessing the work part of it, but not necessarily you as a person. And even within the organization itself, you may have um, say maybe s- senior senior members of the of, of, of the department perhaps trusting you know the the male counterparts more than they would trust you, despite the fact that you're actually at the same level you know and i mean as has been proven before, medicine is not necessarily a testosterone demanding kind of job but rather an intellect demanding kind of job, which I think it has been proven that women have
0: What it takes to be just as good Do you find that because of those components Of being young Of being a woman Mm -hmm. That that drives you to work harder
1: Definitely You know I always say to myself um, If I'm to go and see a gynecologist Or I'm to go and see Say a a pediatric surgeon for, for, For my child Because I know how hard That person has had to work To get to where they are They had to be extra good so trust me, you go to a woman, I'm not saying that they're better than the male counterparts, but because I know how good they have to be at their job, to be taken seriously, firstly by the patients, by the, their teachers, the professors that have taken them into the job, you know. So you have to work that, go the extra mile, because sometimes you'll find, say, there's a new consultant coming into your, into your department from, an, from another hospital, they see, oh, here's a lady. Um, okay, at times they'll refer to you as, where's that girl? You know, and you think to yourself, had I been male, would you have been, you know, calling out for me like that? Where's that boy? Because I don't recall anybody ever being called like that. You know, where's that boy? But somehow when it's, when it's you being a lady, it's okay to just be referred to as, where's that girl? Whereas, and those are little things where you decide, you know what, I'm going to show you. I'm going to do this, mm-hmm. and I'm actually going to do it better than you. You know, so because of that, I tend to, it may be biased on my part, but I tend to
0: trust the female doctors a tad bit more. (laughs) I think (laughs) that sounds wrong, but that's just a bias. on Well, (laughs) I think that is a fantastic insider perspective and insight, which really goes to to show the the journey that women have had to take. And, you Mm. know, the pain that they've had to To walk through through. that gives them perhaps the, the edge in their profession exactly today we're talking to dr Nkomiso gelata who is africa's youngest neurosurgeon we would love to receive your comments on twitter at womanity talk dr gelata when we last left off we were talking a bit about gender Gender equality is increasingly a global focus, as such, taking into consideration the different challenges and successes that women's legal rights have had over the last few years. In your opinion, do you believe that 50-50 representation across the board is attainable?
1: I believe that, you know, wholeheartedly so, actually, and um, the problem is though, for anything to change, it takes time, and we start by changing the mentality first. And even if it means you, you've got to focus on generation by t- targeting different aspects in each generation, but eventually you will get there. And I believe that we can actually get there within my lifetime. Mm. Because I was uh, actually just to digress a bit, thinking about um, something similar the other day with my nephew. Here's a young man who is eight years old, you know, of course, a little boy, but um, in his world right now, for example. His aunt is a neurosurgeon. His pediatrician is a woman. In his world, you know, women are equally good. So there's no talk about, no, this one is a lady, so she might not be as good, this one is. So by virtue of having those types of role models, you then raise a young man or a generation which sees no gender in terms of gender roles. So we can definitely attain it, but we do, however... I think we've got a long way to go, you know, and uh, part of it involves, I think, if we are to, to, to attain this dream, perhaps within my lifetime, we need more of the movements, you know, which are sort of directed towards wom- women empowerment, but to sort of try to bridge the gap between private sector, government sector, and academic sector. Because you find sometimes these three sectors uh, sort of exist independently, you know, of each other. But now to try raise, you know, the, the, the amount or, or the number of women who are sort of in, in leadership roles or in, you know, in uh, high decision-making roles. So we need something or more movements to sort of try to bridge this gap between these three. So I definitely think it's, a, it's, it's, it's an attainable dream.
0: Well, I'm glad you say that in your lifetime.
1: Definitely in my lifetime, because I want to see it. I'd like to wake up one day and even if I'm 65 or I'm 70 and not be judged for being a woman, you can be judged for being old because you're old and maybe you started, you know, getting dementia or something. So at, at, at 75, I'd like to know that, no, any young girl that, that's growing up, I'd like to know that they're not going through the same struggles that perhaps I had to go through. Otherwise, we will not really have achieved anything in terms of this this drive Mm. towards women empowerment, making sure that we're all equal.
0: That was Dr. Nkumisa Jalata, Africa's youngest neurosurgeon. Up next is Dr. Adriana Marai, who is a theoretical physicist and aspiring extraterrestrial with ambitions to rocket off to Mars. We begin by assessing education in the science, technology, engineering and mathematics domains and move on to address space exploration and relocating humans to Mars. Do you think that schools and universities in South Africa are doing enough to encourage young women to pursue careers in science, technology, engineering and maths?
2: So I would say we're in the midst of an education crisis here in South Africa based on the World Economic Forum report from last year that we currently rank, um, I don't want to say rock bottom, but I think it makes a handful of countries in the world that are lowest performing for school leavers in math and science. So I've always been very much a firm believer in myself as a scientist and not as a woman in science. So yes, I happen to be a woman in science, but I'm a scientist predominantly and I've been lucky enough to have had mentors in the universities that I've been in that have really encouraged me as a researcher and as a scientist and never really um, you know, thought of me as a woman in science, which I appreciate, but just as a scientist. So I think this arguments is too cold. I mean, of course, we do have a, a deficiency of women in you know, businesses and high positions as well as in, in STEM careers and uh, in PhD programs and even perhaps in, in um, schools where students are choosing and are largely male choosing and science, whereas maybe the females are not choosing with as much frequency. So the problem goes all the way from the top down to the bottom, I guess, and it is something that we need to address because I think the kind of challenges that we're facing currently globally can only be addressed if all of us work together on these problems, and that means we need, you know, kind of on average 50% contribution from men and women to get all aspects of contribution. Um, Also, I think it's interesting... Um, I don't remember exactly where I read the statistic, but I've read it twice now. So 80% of jobs by 2020 or, let's say, within the next decade or so will be in the in the same field, so science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Um, because of the level of um, technologization, though, that's not a word, But because of the way everything is becoming more reliant on technology, we're going to need more experts in technology or whatever area of technology these may be. So I think that's kind of... Um, It makes the South African tragedy even so much more of a priority to deal with because if we're not preparing our school leavers now in math and science, then in 20, 30 years' time when 80% of careers are based in technology, science, math, um, we're going to have a real problem if we don't already have one now. So I think we need to encourage girls and boys to get involved in STEM um, careers. And In some ways, I feel that being a woman in science, I've had larger advantages than Men in the same position because of fantastic programs like the L'Oreal for Women in Science, which so I'm to be an affiliate. Um, I've served on the jury subsequently, having been awarded um, various awards again through the years. So that's a great program that really looks at the statistics and says um, we need to put, put money towards this in terms of funding for example myself during my PhD to, to finish that degree without having to worry about working full time or part time to fund those studies so these opportunities exist, exist for women and not for men um, and yeah so I think there are opportunities for women in science universities do have uh, methods where they try to in, increase numbers but I think at the end of the day the the role models are really important and maybe previous generations didn't have women as role models in high positions in universities as professors or things like that. And certainly very few of my professors were women in physics. So I think it's changing now because my peers seem to be fairly well balanced in terms of the women and the men entering the field. Um, so I think it's changing, but I think, yeah, the power of inspiration in role models we can't underestimate. So I'm not sure whether it's a matter of, you know, doing specific programs, yes we need specific programs but i more about it, I think it's about getting out there and doing what you do and being visible and thereby encouraging others to get involved
0: It sounds as though there is a combination of, of three elements that, that come through, one definitely from a role model perspective, two resourcing and three focus and as you say if 80% of jobs are going to be in the STEM environment by 2020 this becomes a, a, a travesty and a tragedy if we don't invest into the youth of today, because 2020 is three years away, very short time.
2: Yeah, very short.
0: You're also an advocate of education, and you're actively involved in the promotion of science and space exploration as a special project coordinator for the Foundation for Space Development in South Africa. And this is part of the Africa to Moon project. Could you share with us a little bit more about what that entails?
2: So the Foundation for Space Development, amongst other projects, is um, hoping to launch the first uh, African mission to the moon within the next decade or so. So the idea is to educate and inspire um, students and learners around Africa to reach for the moon by reaching for the moon. So Africa certainly has the combined um, capacity and talent and skill to send a mission to the moon, but this hasn't yet been done by any one country. So... Um, by collaboration of various university and uh, other corporate-type centers around Africa that, ha- that have the, the skills and the capacity to, to contribute to such a mission. Um, we plan to, yes, yeah, launch a probe to the moon to either orbit or to land on the surface of the moon and at the same time to take projects um, designed by students and learners around the continent um, to the moon to implement their science there. Um, or to televise the whole, the whole project um, and just to, yeah, inspire kids from Africa, it's the time of Africa is now, um, we, we don't lack the capacity to, to reach uh, these kind of scientific goals that other countries may have reached already and um, yeah, it's time to pioneer some of our own uh, projects uh, including to the moon.
0: <laughs> and
2: whilst we're talking
0: about an African mission to the moon, you are not content with just doing your research on terra firma earth you're planning on taking your ambitions a step further to continue your research on Mars can you please tell us more about the 100 Mars One project?
2: Sure. So at the moment there are 100 of us left. Um, so don't let your view of who who's applied for the project be limited by me. These are 99 people that I'm really proud to consider myself amongst. Uh, there will still be further selection rounds. So these 100 of us will eventually be narrowed down to 24 who will then train for around a decade before departing four miles, um in the late 2020s, early twenty thirty, somewhere around there. Um, the dates are not fixed, of course. This is the most ambitious project ever proposed in the history of humanity, or even in the history of life on Earth, in my opinion. So, of course, there are many um, unforeseen hurdles, but mainly in the area of kind of funding at the moment, I would say. So the technology almost exists. There are a few... Sophistications or incremental improvements that need to be made in terms of launching and traveling for the seven months that it will take to get there and the landing of a, a larger um, a payload for the cargo in which the humans will, will also be, will weigh sort of 20 to 50 tons, depending on your project design, whereas the other missions we've landed on Mars so far, like the Curiosity rover, is kind of one to two tons. So. Of course, there are certain changes then that need to be made to incorporate this larger mass. Um, But essentially, we have the capacity to send humans to Mars. Um, Surviving on the surface is a whole other aspect to the mission, of course, which would be uh, nice to, of course, survive after getting there. So there are all sorts of projects underway, like um, isolation, simulation training missions, where crews spend six months or a year in in an environment similar to the settlement that they may one day live on Mars, um, with delayed communication. So with Mars being 200 million kilometers away, there will be communication delays because the speed of light is finite. So light itself takes around 10 minutes to travel between the two planets. So Mars is far away. I mean, because we will have satellites, we'll be able to rely on Earth for a lot of information um, to help us make decisions but basically we'll be physically on our own, 200 million kilometers from home, um, living in a settlement that we will, to a large extent, test and uh, experiment with on Earth. Um, but of course, at the end of the day, this will be a new environment. Humans have never been to Mars. Um, so there will be a lot of unforeseen challenges also, uh, which the 100 or 24 that eventually get selected of us will hopefully have trained for during the 10 years of our preparation.
0: Can you tell us more about the thinking behind this? Because you're you're really going out there to almost colonize a new planet, a new form, a new civilization, importing mankind from Earth, transplanting them onto another planet entirely. What were some of the thinking behind the project for it to come about?
2: So I think the founders' main motivation was that we're living in an era where it's recently become possible actually perform or successfully implement a project like this, namely sending humans to live on another planet. Um, And they weren't prepared to not get involved (laughs) based on the fact that the technology almost exists. It still needs some willpower and some funding, of course, to to drive it to really take place in the next 10 to 20 years. That's the real motivation, just to achieve this goal of demonstrating livability on the surface of Mars. Um, In terms of the the use for such a move, well, there's there's multiple layers of motivation. Um, Elon Musk says it most simply, you know, either we stay on Earth as humans and eventually go extinct. You know, that's that's an eventuality um, because it's, on whatever time frame you look at, no uh, species that we know of has survived infinitely long. Um, environments always change and species go ex- extinct when the environment changes at a faster rate than they can adapt to keep up with. So whether it's an asteroid impact or some kind of um, outbreak of some uh, virus on the planet, whether it's uh, some kind of nuclear issue, maybe self-induced. So there are various scenarios that may terminate life on Earth and eventually one of them will come to fruition. So he says we need to have an alternative settlement and that's a core motivation. Um, I think it's even more complex. Um, I'm sure he does too, but there are many, um, many other levels of motivation for this move. So Personally, I think if we had to boil down the problems that we're facing on Earth today, I would uh, use the phrase poor resource utilization. So we've emerged as humans um, in a world where we've lived under the illusion that resources are abundant or infinite. I mean, they are, of course, abundant on Earth, but infinite, definitely not. And now as our population starts to grow increasingly or exponentially, the number of resources on Earth, they finite. So I think we've reached a level where we're trying to optimize things, make things more efficient naturally because we are realizing that things are not as abundant as they once appeared a few centuries ago. And I think the move to Mars will just really accelerate us in the right direction. So not that everybody needs to go to Mars, but those who do will really demonstrate an important principle, namely that we can live much more efficiently and in a much more sustainable way than we do currently, even more than we can even imagine because if we can survive on the surface of Mars, under these hostile conditions, where it's thought that you know life on Earth would not exist, and it wouldn't, without technology, but we can take technology, and we can demonstrate just how efficiently it's possible to, to live in a settlement like that. So, I mean, we won't eat meat on Mars, because it's just not uh, justifiable to have uh, an animal like a cow or a sheep, you know, consuming so much resources <laughs> simply for the pleasure of eating. Um, so I think you know, Moves like this are things that we need to start thinking about on Earth. We will be solar-powered. The whole settlement will rely on solar energy for its functioning. Um, as far as we know, there is no fossil fuel on Mars because there's no evidence of large-scale photosynthesis at any point. So, yes, the natural source of energy will be sunlight and technologies will be developed in, in terms of this aim. Everything will be recycled. I mean, uh, imagine a drop of sweat coming off of your forehead and getting sucked into the ventilator and purified. <laughs> the source put on one side, the water put back into the, into the water system for the habitat. Uh, components of computers of or whatever technologies we have that break will be um, sort of taken apart as much as possible and put back into 3D printers to as large extent as possible. You know, every, every piece of equipment that we have will be either reshaped or reused or reformed um, and we won't be extracting resources of the kind of careless abandon that we do on Earth often. So I think that mentality, that mindset of um, using technology to live in a very efficient way is really the only way that we're going to have a sustainable future on Earth as well as on Mars.
0: I think that's a really interesting insight. It's not just about how you survive on Mars, creating a a new habitat that's totally self-sufficient, but it's also about reapplying those learnings, funneling them back to Earth to improve how we optimize our resource usage here. You've spoken about the motivations behind the project, almost from a point of view of the project leaders. What are some of your personal motivations for doing this? So
2: my personal motivation in a nutshell is curiosity, and as a child I read a lot. I wouldn't say I have always you know, obvious candidate to be a scientist, um, but I have definitely always been a lover of learning and knowledge and absorbed whatever books I came across. And, later on the internet, always reading and researching as sort of part of who I am. So as a child I always longed to have been born in a different era. I felt that this modern era that we were living in was kind of boring and I wanted to be a, a Viking warrior or an Egyptian queen or a Greek philosopher or any other fascinating period of history. However, now I've changed my mind and now now is the most interesting time in which to be alive, in my opinion. Things are changing at, at an incredible rate, at an unprecedented rate, and achieving your wildest dream tomorrow is really much more probable now than it ever would have been in history before. So I think no matter what era I lived in, I would have been amongst those people to put up their hands, to volunteer or to pioneer some new mission, some new idea, um, to go where people haven't been before and discover new things and explore new things. So I think that's just part of my personality trait. Maybe as a French Huguenot descendant um, amongst other people who've traveled many months by sea to get to the tip of Africa sort of hundreds of years ago when my ancestors moved here. Maybe it's part of my DNA to have this kind of pioneering, exploring spirit. Um, but, yeah, for me it's really about curiosity. And then there's so many benefits of this curiosity to society, so the knowledge creation, the technology improving, um, and yeah, all the it boils down to knowledge creation that takes place when you're curious and you push your boundaries.
0: arguably, you couldn't get more pioneering than traveling to Mars. (laughs) That was Dr. Adriana Marai, a theoretical physicist and astronaut candidate of the 100Mars1 project. Joining us now is former Miss South Africa 2017 and current Miss Universe, Miss Demi-Lee Nell-Peters, who describes the roles and responsibilities associated with pageants.
3: Now... You have to remember, I'm, I'm not just Demi Lee from Sedgefield anymore. Uh, I'm, although I'm South African, I am representing every word I say, every action I take, I am representing a whole nation, you know, different cultures, different languages, different towns, different cities. And that is a very big responsibility because you have to take everybody into consideration. Although I, I feel like I've always tried to take people around me uh, to consider them and to respect their their beliefs and and the way they do things but I feel that now you are under much more pressure to do so
0: and I would say that given the global view of these types of pageants That it's not just South Africa That you're representing But it's also Africa
3: Definitely Definitely also Africa And I can feel it On, on my social media platforms You know I have had messages And comments And support From other countries You know Not just neighbouring countries But even countries As far as Indonesia USA Mexico So that is so heartwarming To see You know There's people from All over the world That's watching you That is supporting you Um Although they have their own contestants taking part But something else that uh, t- For me is, is A very, very big responsibility Is the fact that some, A lot of young girls look up to you So much and Your every move they, they, they will duplicate They will try and follow in your footsteps So that is a very big responsibility um, To set the right example For our youngsters can you tell us more about the Beauty with a Purpose and the community project that you'll be engaged with? Yes, so um, firstly I think Miss World and Miss Universe both have those components and they want somebody that's a spokesperson, that's passionate about the cause they are supporting and that can stand up for what they believe in. Um, I obtained my degree in Beacon Business Management and Entrepreneurship at the end of last year. So I, I'm a graduate and by that I feel empowered and I feel that I am educated to do something more and that I am educated and I have the knowledge to start my own business, to, to start a successful career. Um, I... Unfortunately, was in an attempted hijack about two weeks ago. And that was definitely a horrible experience to go through. But I, I did a course through one of my sponsors, Nissan and Mark Robloff from Whip um, Women Empowered. And where they taught me um, the necessary, they gave me the necessary skills to handle a situation like like a hijack. And was that pre-the hijack or post-the hijack? Pre-the so hijack, so I actually did the, the safety driving course with Nissan the Monday before it happened literally two days before it happened and they went through a whole process with me, you know what's what will happen, what is likely to happen, what they'll do um, and ex- what They taught me what Nissan and Master Drive taught me, it played off exactly word for word like they said it would. Um, I was empowered. I had the necessary knowledge to handle the situation to the best of my ability. Obviously, I was rattled. I was scared beyond measure. Um, There were three armed men pointing a gun at me. You can just imagine what I went, you know, what feelings, what emotions. went on at that moment um but i had the ability to stay calm to handle the situation i knew i d- didn't have to resist and i knew i had to get out of the car and get away as soon as possible um, and that is exactly what i did if i had not done courses like this um I think, you know, the situation could have turned out much, much worse. I could have ended up in the car with them and they could have driven away with me. I don't even want to think about that. But to be honest with you, if I, if I hadn't had that knowledge and, uh, you know, these courses truly gave me the power to take control of a bad situation. And I would love to focus on women empowerment, um, by giving motivational talks, I would love to have um, thousands of women attending these courses. So I will actually be launching my project this Saturday, the 24th of June, um, in, in Pretoria at Altitude. It will also be my birthday party, so it will kind of be a two-in-one, but I'm very, very excited about launching this project. It is um, the, the, My campaign is called Unbreakable, and you can stay tuned – for further details, ladies, so keep an eye out on my social media. So I would love to involve all women from different walks of life in this project to empower all women, and I feel that this does not only go to as far as far as you know crime, but also toxic relationships. Our
0: program. Is all about gender equality, and it is increasingly becoming a global focus. And if I look at just recently in terms of events, Wonder Woman, it has been yes. an absolute <laughs> phenomena and success from female lead through to female director. Yes, and I think that that is very, very empowering for everyone around the world, particularly young women, yes. to, to look up to and know that this can be achieved. Definitely, but. It also reminds me about the fact of building female leadership. And leadership is obviously a key area in your DNA and what, and what you're focusing on. So can you tell us a little bit about how you see female leadership, whether it is in the political spectrum, the public spectrum, or any other sphere?
3: Uh, I see leadership um, with men or women as standing up for what is right. Not for what is right for one person or one group of people, but what is right f- as a whole. What is what is right for the country? What is best for our country? That is what I see leadership as. And um, sometimes it takes courage to stand up for what is right because it's not always easy and it's not always the best. The best, you know, the, the popular choice. The popular choice, exactly.
0: And on that theme.
3: What areas do you think we still need to do to help benefit women in the future? I think women need to know what their worth is. And they need to know that um, they are worthy of love and care and respect. And they deserve all of those things. It's, it's, to me, it's not a, um, what's the word, um, it's not a privilege I feel that that's a right every woman should have um, is to be respected. She should be able to wear whatever she wants, um, say what she wants, do what she wants, pursue a career that she wants without being judged and without being disrespected for that.
0: Lastly, we are coming now to an end of the conversation. Can I ask you in closing off the show to please share a few words of inspiration which you'd like to impart to young women that are listening to us today
3: I would really like to tell women out there that I can promise you one thing and that is that people want to see you do good but they don't always want to see you do better than them Um, nothing is going to just land in your lap, nothing is Going to just happen for you, you are going to have to make sacrifices to make it work to make your dreams a reality and if you believe in something, believe in it all the way uh, to me there's no use in doing something whole, wholeheartedly whenever I do something, I want to give it my two hundred percent and and look back on you know a, a project that I've taken on and say Demi you have done your best you really there's nothing you could have done. Differently to make it a bigger success So if you want to make something work You will find a way to make it work And you have to fight for your dreams If you want that job interview You can't expect... For a big company to send you an email, they've never probably even they've probably never even heard of you. Um, go and knock on their door until they open, until they accept you for an interview. I mean, that's just a simple example, but sometimes you have to make things happen for yourself.
0: That was a current Miss Universe South Africa's Demi Leonel Peters reminding us to make things happen for ourselves. You have been listening to Humanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. Dream big and live your dreams in 2018.